This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard with the Pennsylvania Action Coalition and the Executive Director of the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium. As part of our special training coverage, we're bringing you a conversation about the role community health centers can play in addressing community violence. Two community health professionals will share their perspective with us and how they're working to improve access to health care and reduce violence in their communities. My colleague Jillian Bird, Director of Training and Technical Assistance at the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium, will lead the conversation. Through a wide variety of ongoing programming, Jillian and her team help support providers working at community health centers across the country. Thank you, Sarah. Joining me for this conversation through Zoom are Cheryl Say and Wayne Clark. Cheryl is the program manager for the Center for Community Health Workers at Penn Medicine at Home. She's based in Philadelphia and is also the founder of the Gerald Christopher Say Love and Laughter Foundation, which is focused on addressing gun violence and community health. And Wayne is connecting with us from Oakland, California, where he is a health navigator at Roots Community Health Center, Inc. He's also the founder and executive director at Oakland Impact Center, which provides innovative counseling, mentoring, skill building, violence prevention trainings, and more, as we'll hear. Welcome, Cheryl and Wayne, to At the Core of Care. Hello. Hello, thank Thank you. I appreciate you both coming together to talk about this topic. Could you start with telling us about why you do the work you do and what brought you into the field of community health? Cheryl, if you could go first and then Wayne. I've always been a community servant, so to speak, Um, just from growing up and uh, observing my parents. They were always givers in the community and that just carried over into me. And then, you know, after I was married and got my own family, we did the same things. We were the block captains on the block. Everyone came to our house for help and support, money for heating bills, or the kids would come for popsicles, or we were the family that did everything with everybody on the block. We always supported the children. We always supported the families. After a while, I was working in the university, and my job was discontinued, but then I was offered the opportunity to work as a community health worker on the medical side. A friend of mine said, you know, you and your husband, you're always helping people. You do all these great things. I think you would work well as a community health worker. So that's how I landed in the role of a community health worker at Penn Medicine. And then uh, recently I was promoted to a program manager for about eight months now. So that's how I kind of got into this role and this work, because that was something that I always did naturally. Thank you. And Wayne? Thank you for sharing, Cheryl. I could feel the passion from the work you do. I highly appreciate you. Yeah, for me, it was um, kind of coming through once being a part of the problem in my community that brought me to the work. I came up in a a home where it was a single mother, three boys. I was the youngest, all different fathers. My mother moved to California from the East Coast by way of Little Rock, Arkansas. And we struggled really, really bad. And um, as the young one, when my brother went off to college, my mother was sick. My middle brother was kind of the black sheep, I made some decisions to try to help my mother and help my situation. You know, we didn't have PG&E a lot and food a lot. We were the families that Cheryl are talking about helping. And so for a long time, I lived a life being part of the problem in my community. But 
Well, around the age of 33, I'll be 46 in a month. Lost a few really, really close friends to gun violence. Lost one of my friends to life in prison. And this was my closest circle. And kind of a light went on. Um, I had four children and um, I always committed myself to, since I didn't have my father, I wanted to be the best father I could be. And the light kind of went on and said, man, this is going to be the end for you, prison or or death, if you don't change something. And we committed to being good to our children. And in that journey of transformation, I started just realizing that I had never really heard this conversation around healing and trauma. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks, like, wait, I'm not just a product of the thing. I'm not just this animal that people paint you out to be, but there's trauma <laughs> in our communities. And so as one who always has been what I call investigative, I started to really do a lot of research on this stuff and say, wow, I found that the core of the troubles in our community is the trauma. And then I started understanding that this is historical, you know, from my ancestors. And so taking this deep dive of understanding that our community is traumatized over and over and over, it made me start to take my own journey. And as I started to heal and be proud of myself and progress and do amazing things. I just wanted to offer that to everybody else in my community because I know now that the possibilities are unlimited. And I actually also say that we, the people who have been through the problems, is the people who can help the people that are going through the problems. And so there's nobody more qualified. And so finding myself in these spaces, um, I came to Roots and very intentional because Dr. Noha, who was the founder, executive director, was one of the most powerful voices I heard that was connecting health to violence. And I really hadn't started to hear that until about three years ago. And that caught my attention because I'm like, yeah, at the root of the violence is health issues, mental health, physical, all kind of health. And then at the root of a lot of the health is gun violence, too, because you get the mothers and that are going through all kind of stress in the families. It takes a toll. And so I came to Roots because I wanted to be close to the voice that I knew that was doing major work. And um healing has been at the core of my journey. And so that's kind of what brought me to the work is that I was once a part of the problem and I passionately now like to serve and be a light and make the connection to y'all. We not just like this because we are, but we need healing um, and we're a traumatized community. Thank you both for sharing these reflections on your community and your lived stories. I do really hear from both of you this desire to be available to your communities, to give back to your communities. And it's given you this opportunity to interact directly with community members in an effort to improve lives on a personal and broader level. I'm wondering, Cheryl, if you could give us an idea of how your life story or events of your family have directly given you cause to address community violence within your community here in Philadelphia. In 2011, my family's life changed forever. As I mentioned before, we were always the family on the block where everyone came to. But on April 24th, 2011, Easter Sunday, our family had just finished Easter dinner. And these two guys rang the doorbell. And my husband said that he got a funny sense when he saw these guys at the door. They were asking for my son, Jarrell, who was in the basement Preparing for school. It was Easter break, so he was getting ready for school the next day, washing clothes and doing all those type of things. And so my husband called Jarrell to the door because Jarrell knew everybody. He played basketball. Like, everybody knew him. All the children loved him. 
And he went outside on the porch. And my husband said he went with him because he just didn't feel right about these guys. And so they asked Jarrell a question. And uh, Jarrell said, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Jarrell was six feet tall, 6'2", 200 pounds. And so uh, he talks to the guys, tell them that he doesn't know what they're talking about. He turns around to go back into the house. The guys make pretend they're walking down the steps. And as Jarrell is going in the house, they turn around and one of the guys shoots Jarrell in the back twice. And he falls at the door. And my husband is screaming. And I'm screaming. And the neighbors are screaming. Everybody was outside. And I couldn't open the door. It was just the most horrific day ever. Like, I... It'll never, ever, ever, ever be the same for me or my family. And um, we felt like we were betrayed because we had been a family that was always given on the block and helping others. And now this happened to us and nobody would say anything. Nobody said they saw anything. And it was a beautiful day outside that turned the darkest day ever. Even now, 11 years later, you look around and you see these things have gotten even worse these shootings are happening every day, at any time, any place. And it doesn't seem like anything is getting better. And so we started the Jarrell Christopher Say Love and Laughter Foundation because Jarrell always gave us love and laughter. Every night he would tell us, love you, mom, love you, dad. You can imagine a six foot tall guy, <laughs> you know, sharing that love. And that's who he was. As I said, all of the children in the neighborhood loved him. Even the little children would come to the door and ask, is Jarrell home? Can he come out and play basketball? Because he was just that type of guy. He always looked out for others, the elderly, the children. He was always there to support others and my other son as well. And so we developed the foundation. And the mission of the foundation is to unite communities by connecting families while helping to protect our children through gun violence prevention, safety, and education. And through our organization, over the past 11 years, we have worked with the youth in our community through different programs that we have offered. One is the Defenders Program. Then we have another one, a LIP program, which is Ladies in Power for Peace, where we mentor young girls. And through both of those programs, we empower our youth to know that they don't have to let their current life circumstances determine their destiny. We also teach them about their history because they're not being taught their history in school. We also teach them about being a good citizen, knowing and understanding the process of voting, making sure that they go for their driver's license and their voters registration and the things in life that they need to be successful. And we also empower them to be involved in their community and perform community service activities. I'm sitting here listening to your story start from such a profoundly, intensely tragic event. And what I'm hearing you say at the end here is how much you've double down on loving your community. And when I imagine it could be very easy to want to retreat into anger and despair. And it's a really profound story and the way that you've put into action emotion and loss. I wonder about that resilience and you speak about healing 
including the whole family. And I know that this touches on a lot of the work that you're doing, Wayne, and just interested to hear how Cheryl's story is resonating with you and where you see your work intersecting with Cheryl's and how your efforts are directed at healing. Cheryl, thank you. My heart is full and also heavy at the same time, but um, just a lot of celebration and Man, we are such resilient and powerful people. And that's the message I want my life to carry is that you can take your pain and turn it into power. And we have choice. Our work, it's so much, you know, at the heart of it, it's so similar because I started my particular organization after working with a lot of different organizations as a contractor and working mainly like with the city of Oakland. And then I did some work with the city of Flint, too, as a consultant. And one of the things I Cheryl pointed out is that it's not just about the children. It's about the whole family. And so even in a lot of my work and starting my own organization, one of the things I had was a container called Brothers Behind Mothers. And the reason why is because as we were working with a lot of these young men caught up in the cycles of violence, a lot of my work was working with the perpetrators and the victims. And so what I start to realize is this saying came out of it that we're working with the fruit, but what about the root? Which is the mothers a lot of times, you know, we have so much work. I just have a belief that, you know, and even out of my own story, If you would have came and really took some time to see why I was being who I was being at the age of 15, 16, 17, in these early ages, you would have saw my mother was in the hospital for eight months one year. We were struggling with no finances. PG&E was being cut off. And my mom was doing the best she possibly could. She was doing the best she possibly could. She is my shero. And she was doing the best with the cards she was dealt, but it just wasn't enough. There wasn't resources. Nobody was really coming to help. And so one of my passions have come out of this understanding that, okay, I can sit with a young man. And I've had many of them tell me this over and over. They say, Mr. Clark, I sit with you for an hour or two and I feel like I can do anything. <laughs> and then I go back to the block. And gun violence happens. Now I'm back in fight mode or I go back home and my mother needs medicine for my little brother. What do I do now? I still know everything you sat and told me, but there's these things going on in my home. And so one of the things that I looked at when I started my organization, is I said, to work with anybody I have to do at least one in-home visit to work with us to qualify. Because what I've come to understand is when you go to the homes or go to the community, you'll get the answers on why people are struggling more than anything they'll probably tell you when they can sit down and because they can't really articulate everything that's going on in their lives. And so in this process of seeing all this, knowing my own story, knowing of all my friend's story, it really has become about the family because to have this healing work be sustainable, you can't heal one person and then they go back to the pack and it's still trauma. So I have a passion about working with the mothers. I've really done a lot of research on what I feel like we're being reactive. So you can look it up and we have much money on reentry, but then there's not the proactive work. Like Cheryl is talking about working with the young people. I mean, I've built this passion where I want to start working with the six and seven year olds. Because the times is changing and these young people are carrying guns and they know all about everything and they're carrying the trauma. And we understand that this path of trauma. And so when Cheryl talks about the family like that lights my heart, because that is what I think I don't see enough. I see a lot of organizations working with the individual. 
But actually, we need this holistic healing. I have many young men or young women that, you know, we work with them and then they go back home and their family don't understand what they're trying to do anymore. So there's a lot of alignment. I believe that the healing, it really does have to happen holistically. But I think we definitely need to be more proactive in our work. And I really would like to see more funds and more intention put into that. And just even talking about healing in our community, it's taboo. Therapy. When I first got therapy, when they somebody came to me five years ago and was like, hey, a good mentor, he's like, I'm going to pay for you six therapy sessions because the work you do is amazing. But eventually you're going to need some help, too. And I was like, no way. We don't do therapy. That's for crazy people. You know, that's what I've been taught. And he broke it down to me in a way was like and I was like, I'll try it. So I went and it was the most amazing experience in my life. And so then I just been throwing therapy at everybody like Oprah, like you get therapy, you get everybody needs therapy. But sometime I am their therapy, just my showing up in my way with my energy and working on myself. And I think we need to concentrate on the mental, the physical, the spiritual, the whole person. And I think there's a disconnect. So mostly everything Cheryl said, I piggyback and it's the same work I'm trying to do. Thanks for all of this comprehensive expertise that you both are sharing with us. And I keep hearing your personal stories and how this is giving you what I consider a special expertise. And you also both work in systems of healthcare. And what an amazing insight you have as providers to navigate through communities and understand the populations that you're working with. Both of you work with organizations that are quite different. Cheryl, yours is a massive academic hospital system that is invested in its community and particularly in the community health worker program. And Wayne, you're working with Roots, this community health center that's really mission-driven, rooted in a community and doing work really focused on the needs of that community. So I'm really curious about the day-to-day ways in which you see these systems participating in the healing and addressing supporting individuals facing violence, or on the other hand, where we are still falling short with our systems. And you both have mentioned a little bit of that up to now, but I'm wondering if you could look at it more from that perspective of the system. And maybe, Wayne, you could start. So coming to Roots was like, it was a no-brainer for me. I literally sought them out. Dr. Noha Abaleta from Oakland, California, with this vision that connects healing and violence and built this amazing organization, Roots, that offers the person anything they need, pretty much, from helping people with medicines to therapy. I'm talking about on the spot. You can come to this one-stop spot where you can almost get help with anything. I mean, if you need a mentor, if you need to talk to somebody, if you need help getting an ID, she looks at all of this as a part of health. And so that was so interesting to me because I've never seen anything like it. And so In my day-to-day work, I'm actually a life coach. So that's kind of what I do. But the title within Roots is Health Navigator. And what I like about that, and it was the first time I heard it, is because Dr. Noha understands that we're helping people navigate their healing. And so that's why it's called a health navigator, because 
Healing, you know, is step by step. Sometimes just getting an ID with nobody in your family. You know, just having somebody around with good energy and good vibes and positive outlook on life, or it's just having a good example around. And this is the work that we get to do. So I'm encouraged by some of the individual systems, which I feel like is a small part, but the bigger systems, I think we aren't there yet. I think we're still struggling as a bigger system to get this understanding that health and violence is connected, that people are not just violent innately. You know, nobody comes out of the womb wanting to do these things, but there's things that happen along the way, you know, and a vision for me really would be where bigger healthcare places will have more people like me and Cheryl sit at the table in some of their bigger meetings, influencing and giving them not just the book stuff. See, you get all the stats that don't tell you half of the stuff me and Cheryl can tell you what's really going on. So my vision is what would it look like if Wayne or Cheryl was sitting with a big hospital and had a voice at the table saying, OK, I know that's what your numbers show, but let me give you some insight on what's really going on there. And then on the same side, when I'm out here with all of the workers that's doing the street work, what would it look like for somebody from the healthcare system to come in and actually sit at our tables? So this cross working. I just believe this separation where we don't understand that it's all together. It doesn't. There is no separation, really. Many of the mothers that show up at the hospitals, they don't even know how to identify that their depression, their stress or whatever. It's it's because I lost a son two years ago. They won't even tell you many times because they think it's normal. So I really would like to see us cross bridge this stuff. And I am so excited to be a part of an organization that's doing it. But I feel like at this point, collectively, we're not doing a good job at that. And so I would love to see more of that in the bigger systems. Cheryl, is this leading you to have a response to Wayne? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Wayne, on having bigger systems involved, especially our health systems involved in part of the solution, working towards the uh, gun violence. And it's so ironic that you should mention like sitting at the table with some of these big health systems, because for the past year, me and five of my colleagues have been sitting with the Penn Medicine executives in a mentorship program where we've been telling them and talking with them about how we would like to see people of color at the table making the decisions about the care of the community that they serve. Because when you don't have that, then you don't have fair and equal treatment and care. You have bias, which I've seen. You have folks that are just out of touch. They're not into reality. It's so many things. So if we don't have equal representation at the table for decision making, how can we ever move towards change? It's like we're always on a spinning wheel trying to catch up. So that's a program we've been working with over the past year. It's coming to an end soon, and we hope to have some continuation in that program. But I pray that some positive results come from that. But also getting back to the other things that you mentioned, I also see as being a community health worker first before going into the manager role, a lot of the folks that we would talk to and meet, visit and help support often dealt with trauma in some type of way. I've had folks tell me that every man in their life touched them, some of the older ladies. I've had 
people tell me how they don't have anything to eat at the house. Or you go to the house and you see the living conditions where they have holes in the ceilings and the walls and you're wondering why aren't they coming to the doctor where they're trying to get the house together because it's in bad shape. And they don't want to come outside because they're afraid to travel because of all of the things that's going on in the street. So it's so many layers that's involved that relate to gun violence that have to be addressed and we have to get everyone involved in order to work towards some solutions. But I've even seen because I've participated in a lot of conversations in some other podcasts and some gun violence symposiums. And I'm glad to see now that it's becoming more of a conversation, more people are talking about it. But I also see that A lot of the clinicians or providers that are working in the trauma units are also traumatized. They are also traumatized just because they are in these professions and, you know, they have a nice paycheck. They live nice places. That doesn't mean that they're not feeling and absorbing all of this that's happening day after day after day. Just like Wayne said, we are all affected by this This is our pandemic. This gun violence is absolutely ridiculous. And I hope, pray that we all come together, every entity, every organization, every party that could be a part of the solution come together. Because one thing that's not going to happen, and I think that folks are waiting to happen, is that somebody's going to come in to save us. No one's coming in to save us. This has been going on way too long. We have to do this collectively as one. Then we start to see the change. And as individuals, as people, and healthcare feels like a system. And what it is when you get basic with it is people supporting other people. And I hear so much you acknowledging the pain and suffering that is existing in healthcare professionals' lives as well. And there's so much that we do to try to shut those feelings down. Obviously, living within communities that are experiencing elevated violence, there's so many adaptations people have to make just to get through. And we see it in healthcare systems where people become shut down. They lose that human connection. You know, we've talked about the systems and the impact that violence has on health. Cheryl, you mentioned something almost to the effect of universal trauma, you know, that who hasn't experienced trauma at this point? I'm wondering if either of you can reflect on strategies that you've seen in practice or you yourself practice that help mitigate some of that trauma that is being experienced in communities or how healthcare professionals might implement these strategies in the ways in which they're relating to people that come in for care? Well, I think for the healthcare professionals, for them to be more relatable to the communities that they serve, they should have cultural competency training I know that's usually something that's required and they may do like a one-time training or something like that. But I think that's something that should be ongoing because you have to understand the populations that you serve, the things that are their 
customs, so to speak. You have to know the type of things that they go through and deal with in order to be able to treat them and care for them effectively. You just can't treat them or work with them on what you may think that they should receive or what they should react to if you don't understand where they come from. Like, you're not that lived experience like me and Wayne are. So you just can't say, oh, well, you know, they're just complaining because they don't want to lose weight and they just keep eating all the junk food. But if you're in that environment, in that community where they live at, and you see the food choices that they have and you see the barriers and challenges, then you're not likely to say, oh, well, they don't care or they can't do better. You say, how can we make it better? I think that's something that would be helpful, especially with the health care providers and providing like quality care. Understand the clients that you serve and where they come from would be helpful. And then also, too, partnering with community groups like the Jarrell Christopher Say Love and Laughter Foundation and Roots. These organizations and law enforcement and senior centers and daycares and schools work together collectively on how we can address these issues. Because like Wayne said, working with six and seven year olds, because things are different, they are very different right now. They are very different in our schools and in the daycares. Things that would have never happened five, 10 years ago are now happening where these kids are bringing drugs to school, weapons to school, babies. I'm not talking about teenagers. We're talking about babies. So we have to start there as well and include them in. And that's something that the Safe Foundation has done in the past. We went into daycares and talked to the children about the dangers of firearms. We have to stop putting folks in silos or, oh, well, these are babies. They don't necessarily need to know about this because they can't understand that that's not true. We have to include everybody in this to make it better. So the partnerships is very important as well as the training for health professionals. And what do you think, Wayne? Yes, I a thousand percent agree with Cheryl. And just to add to that, I think there's an opportunity Cheryl brought up one of the greatest points for me, and I think you heard me kind of already talk about this, but as I've looked at people who have done this work, and I'm going to just call them healers, whether it's people in healthcare or people working in the street, helping people heal. We're helpers with people's healing. Many times the healer is not getting healed. And so when Cheryl talks about that healthcare person that is struggling with their own stuff, I see it over and over and over. And this is something that scares me, really. I actually have come to my own belief of working around many people who I call my friends, that we have people that run into this work, running away from their own work. So it kind of sometimes lets you not focus on your own stuff, but you can feel good about helping everybody else. That's not sustainable. I believe we need more education and more programs for the healers for those who are actually doing the work. And this is something I am so proud that I've got to be a part of. As I've taken this journey in healing, I'm just understanding that. One of the things I tell a lot of people that surprises people is that trauma isn't in your mind. It's in your body. (laughs) This simple saying catches so many people off guard. Trauma lives in your body. It is a live thing. You can say something. I can remember my friend being shot 12 years ago. I can feel it right now. Cheryl will testify to this. You can feel it. So it's in our body. So one of the things that has been powerful for me is one of my good friends 
We talked about this about five years ago. He'd been working on it. Um, this year, he got a grant where we brought 10 brothers together from across California. Most of them have been incarcerated from L.A., from Oakland to Stockton, been part of gangs, been part of the problem. Let's just say that. But we've all transitioned our life and we're now doing the work to help our communities. But many of these brothers don't have space to help themselves. So what we did was to create this space called the Maroon Space. And it's all black men, men of color, black men in this particular space. And we have had four retreats in Santa Cruz on weekends. We go up Friday evenings and we come back Sunday evenings. And it's all doing what's called somatic work. Somatic work is a work that I literally look at it as our ancestors kind of work. It's a work where our ancestors didn't have doctors. How did they heal? Well, they knew a wisdom that was in their body. And so many times our brothers and our sisters and our healers and our people are working with intellect. But there is a higher intelligence that is existing in us that's accessible that can help you work with stuff. And it's a trip to see some of these brothers who, when you ask them, where do you feel that in your body? What is your body telling you? They want to go to their heads. But we invite them into, and I'm doing this process too, of tapping into the wisdom of your body, listening to what your body is actually telling you. Many times you will feel something you just say, oh, I had a gut feeling. That's a real thing. (laughs) The gut is the second brain that a lot of people don't understand, you know. And so even bringing that kind of stuff up, just sharing this kind of education about working on our own stuff. I think is one of the big things that I want to see where we're concentrating on getting the healers healing. I've had the opportunity to work with law enforcement, kicking and pushing when I first started that work. Didn't want to do it, but I'm always listening to what I call the Mother Harriet Tubman voice that if it says go, I go. That's my favorite hero. And I went and it was such a blessing to me because what I realized is those are some of the most people that need healing in our world is law enforcement. The stuff they deal with (laughs) is like and don't get no help. So all across the board from our nurses, from our street workers, from our mothers to when Cheryl says everybody is being impacted by this. Even some of the people that don't recognize when they pushing back on this, there's some trauma there, too. You know, it's deep. So this conversation on the healer getting healing and having access to healing is a big conversation for me. And then, like I said, I do want to continue to think about how we really come together collectively. I'll end with saying Cheryl talked about our partnering, but don't just partner. Give them partners the same power at some of these meetings because I see people bring people in to look like a good look. Like, okay, Wayne is at the table, but we're not going to listen to anything he really says, but we just want him at the table to be able to say he's at the table. But no, bring people in and value their voices and their wisdom. No, it might not be from a college, but man, I'm telling you, I have never been to college in my life, y'all, and I've been all over this world. Why? Because once I understood that my experience is something that many organizations don't have access to. You can't get this information. Many people are in those books and they can read it back and forth, but don't really know how to deal with people. You know the program. I always say y'all know the programs, but don't know people. And that's a problem, (laughs) you know? So I would really love to see more of our voices valued 
at the table, you know, actually see follow through on some of our stuff. But that one with the healer being healed. Let me say this piece. Here's one of the biggest issues to me is when we do the work, say myself, let me use myself. And I'm working with these 10 young men and we're making progress. And then I relapse and leave all 10 of those people. They had hope for a year and now I'm gone. Guess what? I re-traumatized them. Because they had hope and I was loving them. And then I did the same thing that every system, everything that has failed them, I did it all over to them again. That's what happened when you don't take care of yourself as a healer. You can leave these people that you were actually leading. And I see this happening all the time. And then people wonder what happened. So sometimes you only get one shot with people. They only trust one person. And if we fail them, then sometimes they'll never give anybody else a chance. So that's why I believe it's huge for the healer to actually get help, too. Yeah, and just hearing what had to have been an amazing experience for you and the men you've been working with really makes me think of just how much trust they have in you to put themselves in such a vulnerable position and to trust you enough to open and get into their body and what they're feeling. I think about that kind of experience and what it would be for a health professional to be vulnerable and to be a person themselves in a patient encounter and kind of where that falls away, that ability to be a person relating to another person, to provide a space to build trust. I think in so many ways, our healthcare system asks us to completely shut down as people and just address everything like a case or a condition or a complaint. That heal the healer, I think, is a really powerful way to consider it and hopefully something that we can see more of in not only our bigger systems like Penn, but in our community health centers as well. I think there must be a tremendous felt burden across all of our systems coming out of COVID, feeling the tremendous amount of despair, of loss. We've lost over a million people, and we also have a heightening of community violence. And I wonder, when you think about your place of work, how are you supporting each other in your day-to-day work? Are these conversations happening with your colleagues? And if so, what are you doing for each other? For us, we take time and set aside and have fun time, like fun Fridays. Just for instance, everybody got a paint kit and a blank canvas and a little easel. And we had a couple of hours towards the end of the workday on a Friday. And we all painted a picture, which was a lot of fun. And you have to have that break as a helper working in that role, because you can burn out most definitely. You can definitely burn out after visiting and seeing and feeling the things that your patients go through that you have to deal with on a daily basis. So you need that little breakaway time. We've also done activities where we've done axe throwing, where we'll go and (laughs) throw the axe, get that frustration out. We've done outings to amusement parks. So we, at our center, we do take time. We'll set aside dates or whatever to do fun things just to kind of relax and just talk with one another. Sometimes bring our families in, depending on the event, just to get that break and just to enjoy one another for who we are outside of talking about the patients or dealing with the doctors or the nursing staff or whatever. 
just to be ourselves. And that's helpful, you know, for us. That's what we do. Yeah, I love that fun. That's that's the key. I don't think we even use that word in a lot of our work. <laughs> you don't hear fun. No, don't you dare. But at Roots, there's a culture that's very intentional. You know, honestly, it's still hard in our communities to try to sustain it. But I think Dr. Nohai has set a culture where, first and foremost, I think we do a lot of education in our monthly trainings. And throughout the week, she has implemented where we do trainings that are for the staff. You know, here's how this can be showing up in your work. Pay attention to this for yourself, not for the client. And so I love that about the trainings. She's made the therapist that we have at Roots accessible to the staff, which was one of the big ones for me. That's a whole thing within itself, because I think everybody right now, I know in the Black community, therapists are thin because people are finally saying, with COVID, I need some help. And I can't do all of the stuff. And so, but I think it's amazing that we have access as staff to therapists and then creating spaces for fun. We do outings. We have a yearly get together. We have things that we do on a regular to try to create spaces. And I think one of the conversations that has come up in my own life is just, I tell people, I take care of Wayne first. (laughs) I do not know another black man that takes care of himself more than me. I'm proud to say that, but it hurts my heart to say that. I looked at my life and I said, okay, my first dedication is to my children. How can I be the best father to, and what it all pointed back to is me taking care of me. And I had never really heard this. And even in my spaces where, especially talking to my elderly brothers, like they bring it up like, young brother, y'all have access to things and y'all are blessed to have some of the, we couldn't even, we were surviving. You know, (laughs) you all have access to things. So I just love talking about some of these things. But I think it really starts with educating people on how important it is to take care of you, you know. And so I think Roots does a great job with that. But um, individually, I'm very fit. I tell people all the time, I don't even go to the gym for my body. I go for my mind and my body just reaps the rewards. But I'm going because I know what I'm carrying And I know what my purpose is. And so to be the best me for my kids first, then the son to my mother and then the help to my community and the help to the world, I need to be good for me. So I take time. I treat myself to movies. I treat myself to nature. I treat myself to travel, which is my favorite thing. But I make sure I take care of me. And so I'm trying to be an example of that. And I think it's doing good because a lot of brothers and a lot of my people in my community are starting to say, I didn't even really know that was a way, you know, a choice. And that's a word. Just the fact that we have choice. I don't think we know we have choice, that this is a way that you can actually live. Like I tell people, I take myself to the movies. They be like, what? I'm like, it's something I really enjoy. I go sit my butt in the back of the movie all by myself and watch a movie. Find whatever that one. It ain't got to be a big thing. Find something that really gives you joy and gets you disconnected from everything and do a little bit of it for yourself, you know? So I think that self-care, you know, is um, huge. And so I think that is where we're headed. And I think we got to do a much better job at it. I appreciate you both very much. And given everything we've discussed today, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners. I would encourage everyone to get involved in some type of way in your community, rather as 
to volunteer or it's not always about having to give money because folks may not have it, but you can give your time, an hour or two, whatever it is to be a help in what's going on in our world today. No, we can't solve every problem. We can't fix everything. But even just that one little thing is helpful to someone. And it's also helpful to you as well. So I would encourage everyone to get involved in some type of way and whatever it is that they enjoy or being helpful with to do that. And also to remember the motto of the Jarrell Christopher Say Love and Laughter Foundation. And that is, let love be the power that rules you. So with that, when you have the love in your heart and that kindness and you let that take over, then you'll have the positive outcomes. Beautiful. Yeah, I want to sit with that for a minute. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, for me, I just like to encourage everybody to understand that we all have gifts. I don't care what you've been through. In the beginning of my journey, my biggest battle was guilt and shame for all the people that are harmed. But I had to do some work through that. And I had to realize that I am not the things I did. I made some decisions. So I'm speaking to one particular group of people, sometimes questioning, how do I serve? It was the first time somebody invited me to speak that lit a light in my heart to understand, oh, this is my thing. Oh, I I have something in me. So, but speaking to like the bigger organizations that might listen to this or the people that are kind of outside looking in and wonder how... I can be a part because I'm starting to understand there's a lot of that. I had somebody tell me about a month ago, Wayne, until I met you, I felt like I was looking up at the freeway and didn't know how to enter into helping. I want to say this. Be really intentional. You're intentional about a lot of things in your life. If you really want to help, be intentional by researching and find a way. There's a Cheryl, there's a Wayne, there's a Roots, there's an organization where you can talk with somebody I don't care if you come from the wealthiest community and you've never been to one of these kind of communities, but be more intentional about trying to help. Because there are many people sitting on the sideline who really want to help and just feel like they don't know where to enter. And I would just encourage to be more intentional. There is so much that you can be. And like Cheryl said, the love is needed. Our world needs love and light. And that's what I'm committed to being a part of the love and light. I'd like to sit with Cheryl's motto, myself, let the love be the power that leads you. Thank you both so much. Thank you for digging into this very challenging topic, sharing all of your gifts, all of the vision and hope that you see, and also the reality of how these day-to-day struggles affect people. So I, I appreciate you both very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, definitely. Support for this episode comes from the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. It is part of an award totaling $550,000 with zero percentage financed with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. You can find our most current and past episodes of At the Core of Care wherever you get your podcasts or at paactioncoalition.org. 
And to learn more about the issues we talked about today, check out a related training webinar we have available online. For the link, head to our show notes wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can check out our resources tab at nurselifecare.org. You can stay up to date with us on social media at PA Action and at Nurse Care. At the Core of Care is produced by Stephanie Marudas of Cubenda Media and mixed by Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us.